Welcome to episode two of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm talking to Greg Wolf, Director of the Institute of Classical Studies in London uh, and formerly of St Andrews University in Scotland. Greg's the kind of guy that doesn't really need much in the way of an introduction, but an introduction I shall give him anyway. He has written on many, many aspects of the ancient world, uh, including, but not limited to, literacy, the city of Rome, Caesar's assassination, women in the ancient world, sanctuaries and religion, uh, and most recently on themes such as migration and science. For those of you that went to university to study perhaps Roman history or archaeology around the same sort of time as I did, sort of the mid-2000s, mid to late 2000s, perhaps your first exposure to Greg was via his Becoming Roman book, which looked at Roman identity in provincial Gaul. And we'll be talking a bit about that book today. Alongside that, though, we're going to talk about getting outside of your comfort zone or outside of your discipline to talk to people in other fields, uh, the importance of exposure to different ideas and approaches, the role that social media can play uh, in disseminating ideas, and also taking pride in one's work, which is going to allow me a little bit of a segue here, uh, if you allow a little bit of self-promotion, because my book has finally been published. Yay! If you're really interested in finding out what happens to the cult of Mithras in late antiquity, well, it's the place to go. Uh, published by Brill. If you chuck David Walsh Brill or David Walsh Mithras into your Google machine, you should find it quite easily. Uh, it is ridiculously expensive in hardback, as is so often the case with many academic books, but it will be available uh, in ebook form. And otherwise, it will obviously just go into um, various university libraries, including um, the Institute of Classical Studies Library in London, because uh, I actually owe them a book because they helped me out with funding for research. Big thank you to them. But yeah, no, it's, I just want to announce that because it's a pretty big achievement. Probably the biggest achievement in my life since I won 13 games of FIFA in a row in one night against my old housemate. Maybe it doesn't quite surpass that, but, but, but it's close. It's close. Also as well, uh, as is the standard, um, you'll be hearing me say, say this a lot on the podcast, check out the Theoretical Roman Archaeology Conference website, as well as the Facebook page, Twitter, etc., because we'll be hosting that here at Kent in April, and we've currently got the call for papers and posters out, so please do check that out uh, if you're interested in contributing, or if you're just interested in uh, attending as well, you can sign up via those avenues. Um Right, thanks for tuning in. So, on with the show. I don't know if there's something about the sense of kinetic movement or something. I think it's a lack of distractions for me. I can't go off and make a cup of tea or go and think of something I need to do or wander into the next room I just have to sit there yeah that's good, so yeah. it's good for things like peer reviewing or commentating on someone's work or I mean it's I don't very often write sort of articles but um, occasionally but it's a great place to sort of write the kind of dull documents that academics have to write yeah because you're currently doing if I'm correct on this a book on colonisation and also Something on naturalness of urban urban living is that is that right? Um, there's a book on the naturalness of urbanism, natural history of urbanism, which is in fact in press. It's with um, my publisher at the moment. We're waiting to get the readers' report. The reader went first. Reader went AWOL over the summer, 
Um, colonization, well, that's changed a little bit. It's much more a book about mobility, so it reconsiders things like colonies and diasporas in terms of what we now know or think we know about mobility and migration. And I, I find that interesting because it's an area where the subject's changing a lot, where we're now being told there's very high levels of mobility. People are constantly moving backwards and forwards. And we're also being told that people used to think that wasn't true. And probably those positions are exaggerated. And the work I've been doing most recently suggests that there's quite a lot of very, very local mobility in the Roman Empire. If you look at inscriptions, maybe 5% of people end up recorded as dying outside their own city-state. But it's almost always in the next state or within the same province or the same end of the same province. And the numbers who actually move long distances are tiny. So we're seeing a tiny fragment of the population, which is almost exclusively male, um, moving backwards and forwards across the Mediterranean and the other great transit routes. Um, but yeah, maybe the population of a medium-sized city goes backwards and forwards in a world that has between one and 2,000 cities. So I'm interested in the relationship between the movers, the people who go back and forth, and the people who live in these very enclosed worlds of you know, an island, a coastline, a city, an alpine valley, and trying to think how the Roman Empire works as a combination of movers and stayers. Do you find the... Because I guess migration is a very pertinent topic at the moment. Do you tend to find that you the, the topics that you end up exploring relate quite heavily to what's going on at the moment? Or is that something that you're aware of? Or is that something... Because, I mean, you're, you're somebody that's covered a tremendous like, number of different topics. How do you how do you end up coming to the, the topics that you do? At the time, it always feels a bit fortuitous. Somebody you enjoy working with, you have ideas with, and you start writing with. Or it's... Uh... A conference, not usually one of the big ones, but a small workshop where you suddenly get a sense that there's a, a new opening, there's something to be done. You look back in retrospect, and often it seems to fit some kind of circular trend, but whether that's just our... Or I think humans are hardwired to find patterns, and we're hardwired to find patterns where they don't exist as well. So it's very easy for a historian to historicise their own work, to look back and say... I realise I must have been doing this because the Berlin Wall came down or whatever. I wonder how convincing those narratives really are. Because mm. I guess now it's a little bit more... Would you would you say now it's more of a case that people have to almost relate it sometimes more to what's going on now because of things like research grants, obviously. The more you tie it into current affairs, it helps um, those sort of things? Or I think it's something research grants often ask you to do. They ask you to show the wider societal relevance of what you do. And some of the claims people make are more convincing than others. But I think we've been doing it longer. And I think also there's certain kinds of explanations are popular at a particular time. So there's a time in the early 90s where Roman archaeologists in particular were really getting off on being post-imperial and post-colonial. And some of them very clearly were. They were working in areas of, say, North Africa where um, it was immediately evident as soon as you read the earlier bits of work that people had thought about the Romans in Algeria like the French in Algerie and, and there's the, the words you use the same, the language it's clearly also a discourse that involves some of the locals that wonderful story Bruce Hitchens says about being taken to see a site by a local informant who said this was built by the Romans who were the ancestors of the French 
So, I mean, that's clearly around. But at the time, this became very popular. So when Martin Millett wrote his book on the Romanisation of Britain, it begins with a little bit that people don't remember much now about it, how this is the kind of work of a post-imperial, post-colonial generation, or words to that effect. I can't remember exactly what he says. But if you actually read the book, there's no particular engagement with empire or whatever. What there really is engagement with is big data, what we now call big data. That suddenly it's about landscapes and artifacts en masse. It's no longer about one or two key sites. And the, and it's not driven by a historical narrative. It's driven by the same kind of narratives that shape prehistory. So I wonder whether when Martin wrote that introduction, whether he had, was as clear-sighted about his own place in history as one might be later and I mean I so I, I worry the same thing of myself when I write I think it would be easy to tell a story saying I wrote about identity politics in the 90s because that was the big issue of the day but I'm not completely sure I didn't just react in peculiar ways to odd texts and people and conversations yeah it's interesting because actually I was doing I did the the seminar for my Roman written module the other day on Romanization or more the history of it as, as a model and how it's changed and um, the reactions to that and where we're at now we talked about Haverfield and Collingwood and talked about them as products of their time and, and we, we got on to Martin's book and I was wondering because obviously we now we talk about people like Haverfield and Collingwood at a distance of many decades yeah. and I just wonder what when people look back because I suppose books like Martin's book and your own book I guess on Provincial Gaul which tackled Romanization and obviously uh, David Mattingly's books as well I just I, I do wonder what it'll be like in 50 to 100 years time when people look back on on now or recent last few decades and people look at those in the context of when they're produced and if they're kind of picked apart in the same way that we do people like Haverfield it'd be interesting won't it I mean I think one of the one of the issues that the Haverfield debate arose was what constitutes a good explanation of somebody's writing I mean do you stress the big broad factors Britain and Germany, Victorianism, an age of empire, scramble for Africa. Or does it come down to personal connections? And yeah, Simon James wrote a very different account in an article about Roman Britain, where he didn't exactly explain, but he brought out a lot of the developments in terms of two or three families and universities in rivalry with each other, and who was whose pupil, and who was allowed to have access to whose material. And that was a it was, it was almost a sort of Ronald Stein type prosopography approach. Oh, I never thought we were like that, actually, in terms of <laughs> rivalries. And, yeah, wow. Like little dynasty buildings. That That's right, there. yes. I, I mean, yeah, you could write a story about my book and say, oh, well, it's all about sort of fan de siècle. In fact, Emma Dent just did uh, in her recent book on um, uh, empire and political culture in the Roman world. She situates my work and those of some others in a sort of late 20th century moment, Communism has fallen, identity politics has replaced ideology and so on. Or you could say, well, look, here's this guy who, um, having come out of an Oxford education, but part of a generation for whom um, just working on language and text was no longer enough, and then he ends up quite by chance in Cambridge in a period where Ian Hodder is there, and also a whole bunch of H. historians were influenced by Moses Finley, though Finley's no longer on the scene. So you, know, you could write a story about my book about sort of the world of Finley's pupils liberated from Finley's interest in the meanwhile down the street, uh, Downing Street involved in contests between processionists and post-processionists, which would be the better explanation. Mm. How do we how do we account for books? Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things one of the things that interests me 
doing the, the podcast was exploring this idea of to what extent people are the, the the choices they make and what they explore and how their career goes like what how that's kind of born out of their own experience particularly when they were young so i mean in your case how did you how did you end up going down this route what was the what were the some of the things when you were younger that you would say yeah. affected the, the the choices that you made later what well, maybe you don't it's hard to know. Well, I, I, I can reflect on it. I'm not sure that if I was studying somebody else that I would regard their own story as a very authoritative one. But um, I come from a family which uh, where I and my brother were the first two people to enter you know, to have a university education. But our parents and men, their generation, very interested in history, educating people. My parents both teachers. Uh, my brother and I are both university lecturers. We both work on the past and archaeology as well as history. And I'm sure we, we both think this connects up to the interest of we were brought up with a childhood. Yeah, read um, Roger Lanston Green's stories when we were kids. We were taken to run up and down hill forts and walk on Hadrian's Wall. And so we picked up a lot of that. Mind you, I was also interested in the planet Mars and um, <laughs> and, and space science. And somehow that didn't go the same way. I think I, I look back, I think it's a lot of accidents. I had some exceptionally good and dedicated teachers who gave me access to not only to Latin but also to Greek inner state school at a time where it was almost gone. Um, and encouraged me. And I had good teachers other subjects, but those were the ones who were really behind it all. And I grew up in a part of the world where the UC, what's now the UCL Institute of Archaeology had a field unit, a Sussex Archaeological Field Unit. Uh, which was very open to having volunteers. So I used to spend some summers up on the downs digging. And for a long time, sort of classics was the day job or, or the, the study and archaeology was recreational. And then they kind of came together after three or four years. And by the time I developed a thesis topic, it was one that was always going to have both in. So that that's one kind of route, I think. But I look back, I think of a lot of individuals who really encouraged me, Peter Druitt, from UCL, running the Sussex, running SAFU, uh, the good chance of being taken onto a British school at Athens course, and the amazing chance of being taught there not just by classicists but also by a prehistorian, Paul Halster from Sheffield, who had a wonderful gift for making you understand how landscape and soils and um, agriculture all fitted together to understand the ancient world. And, yeah, up to this point, I'd imagine that once I'd read Thucydides, I know I. I knew how ancient Greece ran, and so you know, being spending weeks wandering around the landscapes of Greece with people who really knew them and understood them, that was quite amazing. Um, so I think a series of very happy accidents, and I feel very fortunate. Is the was it was it always going to be the ancient world? Do you think, or were you ever ever tempted to go down a slightly different route of, of history? Because I mean, I suppose like for you, you kind of cross over into the Iron Age as well, quite. Quite a bit, and but um, was it was it always mainly the, the Romans in particular? No, it's never always the Romans. I mean, there's a point. I think if I'd been a bit more imaginative at school and looked at a wider range of degrees, I might have ended up doing an archaeology degree rather than a classics degree, which I then turned into an ancient history degree. Um, I think in the, I probably didn't look very much at the kind of subjects that weren't taught at school, so I studied. You know, French medieval history, Latin, Greek, and then a whole range of subjects at equivalent to GCSE. And I didn't really sit down and think, how about anthropology, how about archaeology, how about sociology? I think that's a shame. I think it would have been nice to 
look a bit more widely. But um, uh, I think it certainly wasn't always going to be the Romans. But I find more and more of what I do is very large scale stuff. So mm. the book I meant that's in press, it's, it really starts with human evolution. And books I've written, well, the previous book I wrote covered about 1500 years of history. And I'm more and more drawn to those really big questions. I mean, partly because I'm excited by some of the books written in there. I you know, work with Ian Morris and you know, Jared Diamond and other people, and particularly Horden and Purcell. And partly also because, you know, I, I want to do it differently. I want to write it in another way. And I feel there are wonderful, tiny topics to do detailed monographs on. But where I'm at my best is on the large scale. Um, so you know, I'm, if I set myself to produce an edition of a classical text, it would be much worse than that that most people do. And, um, you know, I could do a decent job if I worked hard at it. But, you know, where my USP is, is the bigger questions. I, I owe some of that to work with people who encourage me to read Weber and Marx and, um, and Ian Hodder and others. Do you still find the... Would you say today that is the Becoming Roman book, though, the one that people probably still... Is that kind of still the big landmark for you? Or is that? would you say other things have kind of become bigger? I don't know, because just put my own personal experience, the first time I think I ever heard your name was in connection to the Becoming Roman book. And I suppose that's the same for a number of people now. I think a lot of UK academics, their first big book, which derives in some way from the thesis, is often the one that people really fix on them and and that was the book for me although it came out nearly a decade after the mm-hmm. doctorate yeah but when I went into I'm teaching a master's class in UCL at the moment and when I went in to meet the book they knew about was the textbook they'd read the book Roman Empire Story and that's more and more the one that people of a different generation know yeah, sometimes I wonder with, uh, with academics, can, can it turn to that situation if it's like an artist uh, or, or a musician that produces a song that they have to keep playing on repeat? Because <laughs> as much as I enjoy mm. as I enjoy Mithras, I, I sort of find myself now that I can't even stop going back to Mithras. Like one of my students made the observation the other day that we're halfway through term and she was like, do you realise in every seminar and lecture you've mentioned Mithras? <laughs> I was like... Oh no, it's it's happening to me now. It's difficult yeah. to get away from a set of data you know very well, but in practice, I mean, I have you know, I've edited a book on ancient libraries, I've done books on encyclopedism, I wrote a book on ethnography. Um, so, I think there's a, I haven't found it too difficult to get away, at least in my head, to get away. Um, I think, I think there's something about the structure of a UK career that means that people, once they get a job. Um, that they generally end up not writing that many big monographs. And this is quite different from a US career where the most successful people in the discipline might write six or seven or eight monographs in the series of their career. But for most of us, once you've got your job, which is fantastic, the book's out, and then you start working on collaborative projects, you end up writing largely for edited volumes. If you're not careful, you write lots of companion pieces. Uh, you write peer-reviewed articles. And actually setting down to write something on the same scale of what you spent four years researching and then another year writing up, it's quite difficult. Think of the time you spent on a thesis and 
four or five years of your life mostly doing that thesis. Yeah. When are you ever going to have a chance to do that for retirement? No, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that, for some people, that's a downside of the research excellence framework, which in, in many ways, RE has been very good for the disciplines. It made universities take research seriously, providing more funding, more sabbatical leave. It's enabled people who are good at research to be recognised and promoted. But one of the effects of this sort of five-year census is that it does frustrate some of the really big projects. And as someone who sat on a REF panel, um, you do notice how many people you think of as really brilliant in the discipline have, in fact, in the last five years, mostly just managed to get out two or three really good articles for conference papers. So I think that's, that's partly a distorting effect. Yeah, I suppose because even with journal articles, it can take quite a while to finally get them into print because obviously you do a journal article, you can submit it, maybe it doesn't get accepted, it comes back to you, you have to deal with the comments. And I mean, it's sometimes there's stuff that you know that in the long term is going to be good, but you've got that pressure on you to produce it sooner rather than later. And that sometimes, I don't know, do you think that leads people in some cases to maybe submit stuff sooner than they should? And then it's, it's sometimes it needs a bit more time. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think if you talk to anybody who edits a journal, then they will say we get very few articles submitted for journals from mid-career academics in the UK. Um, and that's because... I don't think it's because people are constantly frustrated by the length of time. Of course, it is frustrating when you're waiting to get readers back. I think it's because so much goes into collective works, so editing papers, site reports, things like that. Archaeology, of course, is always much more like a social science than a humanities anyway. And uh, publication modes are much more like social sciences, much more like an economist, where you might spend your entire career writing articles. Most economists don't, even their doctorates are a series of articles. And there's a number of very distinguished British-based archaeologists who have written one book or less in the sense of a single author monograph. They've done amazing fieldwork projects. They've produced or or supervised big multi-authored um, site reports they have maybe done collective work and in one of the British schools or um, in relation with English Heritage or one of its other organisations that kind but you know, the peer-reviewed article and the monograph they're a bit of a dying breed mm. so it's hard to imagine an academic world about them at the moment really but to some degree I think I published one peer-reviewed article since nineteen since nineteen ninety six. Oh, I published lots. It just that particular thing of working for working for a year, maybe on a particular article, getting it right, something around the scale of eight thousand words, ten thousand words, showing it to people, a couple of seminar outings, revision, then you describe sending it off, getting referees' reports, and so on. That hasn't been a lot of what I've done. I've done a lot of contributions to other kinds of works. And, I've, and writing books is a bit quicker too. It doesn't take very much longer for a book to be peer-reviewed than an article. No, I suppose It takes not. a bit longer to write the book. but yeah. um, Do you find that you're one of those people that with research you keep pushing forward? Or do you ever have those moments where you think back to something you've done 
previously where you're like, oh, I'd actually quite like to go back and revisit that now? Or do you just find that it is this constant moving forward? Sometimes it's a bit fortuitous that you get sort of somebody says, oh, well, could you come to this conference in Hawaii? Or, I've never been to Hawaii. Um, <laughs> on this thing you wrote about 10 years ago, and you think, oh, it's true, I've got something new to say. Um, so people do get tempted back to their old work because that's what people associate them with. And I had to positively decide to stop accepting invitations to write on, say, Romanization after I've written my book. Because I felt, well, I've said what I want to say. I put it out. I've time for other people to say something back. But there's a kind of time lag before people realise that you're doing something different. People are always a little bit behind on what you're doing if they don't know you very well. I have sometimes found it useful to go back. I went back to literacy recently, which I last done a very long time ago and did find I had different things to say. Because reading what's been written since, you realise the debate's moved on, new kinds of data have been brought in, there's new questions. That was interesting. And I have the other kind of weird experience where sometimes you, you're writing something and then you discover the core of it is in the footnotes of an article you wrote before and you'd forgotten it. Somewhere hmm. somewhere in, in your sort of buried memory, you had a set of connections and... and um, not you know to call them arguments is too grand, but you had a sort of set of associations which come back to the front of your mind when you're thinking about the same material. Because you're currently looking as uh, you're currently part of the sanctuary project as well with your group game. That's uh, right. Yes, yeah, it's coming to the end. Actually, it's been going for five years. It's a Humboldt Stiftung funded project, and that that's a good example. I suppose. How, how do you get into a project? Well, I got into a project because. This particular scheme was one where German-based researchers nominate somebody they work with already to get funding to increase the amount of collaboration. Although it's much less strictly governed than, say, an ERC or AHRC type scheme, you're expected to involve new people, expected to set them out with, with what we would call early career researchers. You're supposed to involve Germans and non-Germans together. It's all about sort of not exactly internationalising German research, but making connections. And I've been working with Jörg since, I suppose, um, the late 90s on odd little things, and this seemed to be something we could do. But why that project? Because he had he was coming near to the end of a big project on lived ancient religion, and on in which in particular he was interested in the individual experiences of religion. So not mm. the not the big structure, not institutions or norms or whatever, but you know, what's it like to participate in ancient religion? What kind of knowledge experience do you have? And for fortuitous reasons, it had not a great deal of archaeology in it. And so the sanctuary project was was designed to be a kind of way of building place into that project, so lived ancient religion in, in particular places. Mm. Um, and use more material evidence. I will say his recent book, the the lived ancient religion, the volume that came out, um, probably is one of the best covers I think I've ever seen. Where it's the Pantheon, and it's got the. Have you seen it? Where it's the it's the roof of the Pantheon as the dust cover with the hole in the top. Oh and yeah. You can see the sky through it, and then you take it off, and the actual hard cover is a blue sky with birds flying across it. <laughs> uh, it's just I was like, I don't know who they got to to market this, but they did a cracking That's job on clever, it. Clever, isn't it? Yeah, it's like. Uh, that's what they say with uh, when you put something out there, the first bite's with the eye. And I was like, this is one of the first times I've picked up and I picked up an academic book and looked at the cover and just been like, oh, this is this. Is, I just, yeah. more than anything, I want to read this because of the cover. Of course, it's because of the content, but the cover was, just, <laughs> the cover was amazing. Um, 
Are you? Is there anything at the moment in particular that you're reading that you re- that's really standing out to you, or anything you've read recently? Well, I'm actually reading a book called Islanders by Nicholas Thomas, who's um, uh, made a career working on the Pacific, and this is a book about the different kinds of experiences of cultural encounters in the Pacific from, I suppose, the 18th century onwards. Um, And it particularly tries to involve the experiences of Pacific Islanders as well. So rather than simply representing a strange world into which um, Europeans come and learn and take their own preconceptions or whatever. And it's brilliantly written. I've always liked Nicholas Thomas's work. He's done amazing stuff. He's one of the people who, along with, say, Chris Goldston and um, Alfred Gell, has really given us a new way to think about um, religious artefacts. Um, and it's it, it was written presumably in, in around these Captain Cook um, anniversary celebrations. So that's what I'm reading for inspiration and fun. Mm. Do you find that... You, I mean, because I guess you, you have to read a tremendous amount in terms of like stuff that you get sent for review and, and just generally books and articles to do with obviously focusing on the ancient world in various aspects do you find you get uh do you find yourself reading a lot of books that are looking at other historical periods and, and taking a lot of inspiration from them as well or i try to i mean it's you're right the stuff you the stuff that arrives in the intray tends to be core to your expertise at least if the editors who are sending it and doing their job um but I have always found reading the other stuff really interesting. And yeah, one of my other supervisors was was um, Keith Hopkins. And Hopkins was very concerned his graduates should not end up becoming de-skilled and just stay in the classics fashion. He would more or less drive us out and force us to go and take seminars to other faculties and insisted on us reading books in religious studies or in anthropology or something, usually social sciences or modern history. And it's not always very easy to put your finger on how how it helps. I mean, it's, I'd be amazed if I write a paper in a year's time in which something Thomas has said in Islanders is the sort of proposition, and then I take a date and Roman data set and work it out. But but somehow it helps you imagine, or it expands the way you think about things, or mm. gives you a bit of sense of perspective on. And we all, particularly, what am I trying to say? It's very easy to over-specialise. And it's particularly easy for academics to over-specialise. And, and there's a lot of forces that reinforce it. I mean, you know, if you work on Mithras, when people want reviews of books, they'll send you the ones on Mithras, they'll send me the ones on something else. Um, you will end up peer-reviewing papers on Mithras. You might be invited to conferences in which you features and. Yeah, the huge there was a huge kind of it's like a black hole. You you, you could easily spend your entire life orbiting Mithras. Um, <laughs> There's actually, a nice image for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, here's the god of light. It's a black hole. That's a terrifying idea. Um, but it's really important to do to do more than that. I mean, it's like, there are rewards to being a to being a super specialist. I mean, but I think they're not so much rewards for archaeologists and social historians. I mean, I think that. I once worked with a man who worked on a on a fifth century AD epic poet poet, and he had on his shelves everything that had been written about it ever from the nineteenth century onwards. Because not a very well read poem, and he says, "I just want to have everything here." 
And he knew every inch of that poem. He'd spent decades doing it. But um, there's cost as well. And I know I'm not good at that kind of thing. So um, I think I think try, trying to get out of your comfort zone, not always go to the same conference with exactly the same group of people, not, not always reading the same journals. That's a, a quite important, I think. Yeah. I guess it's just... Like... It's comparing it to like going to the gym or something, really. Isn't it? You, sit, you work the same muscle over and over again. There comes a point where you've got to do a slightly different exercise in order to keep improving it. Um, and yeah. If you, yeah if, as you say, if you just keep going, as you say, go to the same conferences, uh, you know, talking to the same people, you're going to improve, but there's a, there's a limit that's going to reach and you have to start taking different directions. Um, I, I think that's a good analogy, yes. Yeah. I'm talking of gym, I actually had my neck this morning, so maybe uh, here's the best analogy <laughs> <laughs> Always stretch beforehand as well. Um, I mean, I suppose overall in the in the course of your career, I, I talked about stuff that you'd look back on and you'd revisit. Is there anything that you look back on with a real sense of pride at all, or is that is everything kind of blend into? To, there's no sort of standout thing, or is there anything you look back and just think, "Damn, that that was good." Well, I yeah, I do try and take pride in stuff, and I think it's quite important to because again, it's a it's the pathology of modern academics that you spend all the time worrying about stuff you haven't done and not enough sitting back and thinking, actually, that was quite good. And although everybody complains about it, annual appraisals are quite good for that because you sit down, someone at the end of the year, and you think, I did nothing this year, I'm exhausted. It was just another endless sea of mess and emails. And you look back over 12 months and say, but actually I did do that. And this thing I wrote is quite good. And that course I taught was really special, made it was much better than the last time I did it. So I think taking pride in what you've done is really important. I mean, I think you should do it quietly and not because it's very easy to be arrogant. And, you know, I went to a seminar last week where someone cited himself about five times and cited no other person. I don't think he realised he'd done it, but, you know... The audience realised. <laughs> so I think a bit of modesty helps. But I don't, I don't think modest... I think you can be modest and also take pride in what's gone well. Yeah. It's the achievement, I suppose, of, in some respects, personal goals, isn't it? Is that, I, don't know, I, I suppose, for the, the field that we're in, I think there's an awful lot of self-satisfaction to be got out of it because it's a subject that you enjoy and you love. I think... I've said this before to people, ancient history, archaeology, these one of these things that if you weren't doing it professionally, you'd still be involved in some capacity. So I think you get, for me personally, I get, I do get a sense of satisfaction out of just doing stuff that's related to something that I really enjoy. Um, I agree. I think it's an amazing job. I mean, it's an amazing job as long as you've been paid properly for it and have decent prospects. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but it is, a, it, the, the amount of freedom is extraordinary. Um, I swim when I can in the mornings. And as it's getting darker now, uh, quite a lot of the people who swim in the morning are no longer able to do because it starts a bit later and they have to get to work. I think, this is what fantastic. I've got this wonderful job where I've got the flexi time to come in a bit later. I might stay till six or seven. But, yeah, a lot of my colleagues don't have that. They have Mm -hmm. to turn up at nine or 9.30 or something. And, you know, we have a lot of freedom. And then... Even if people feel pressured to research, we have a lot of time, mm. usually, whether that means time for field work or time for travel and looking at things, or time for reading or time for writing. So, 
I'm sensitive to my good fortune. Yeah. In my case, I'm, I'm quite limited because I have to go to the gym first thing in the morning early because I go to the university gym. If I go later in the day, that risks me encountering my students. And they can see firsthand how weak I actually am. Uh, <laughs> something I want to avoid. The embarrassment of that. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, talking about research as well, like future endeavours. I mean, I talked earlier about the kind of stimulus that leads you to, to other ideas. But, I mean, are there kind of ideas that are circling in the back of your head at the moment about directions you might go in the future? Or are you one of those people you're just like, I need to get all this stuff done now because i suppose in, in your case as well being director of the ics there's, there's a tremendous number of things to juggle as well so or do you find that you've kind of got that you've got that note in your mind saying oh that's something to to go to in future well i mean that being director of the ics is a privilege and um i am very busy but i also don't have an undergraduate teaching load and it's years since i've marked anything so i'm absolutely not um in a difficult position from that point of view um in terms of where I'm going in the future, I try to I try to prioritise, and there have been yeah, mid-career mistakes ending up with two or three books half written on the hard disk at the same time, all of them past their deadline. And so, I am trying now to schedule things a bit better. So yes, I know what the next two or three big projects are going to be, and I'm now quite wary when I accept seminar invitations that I will only accept a seminar invitation or to give a lecture. If I could speak on something which is part of direction of travel, because it's so easy to get distracted, so easy to be led back to something you've done, onto something that is itself quite interesting, but it, it is not going to take you forward. So, yeah, I know what the next two or three bigger things are going to be. Um, I still hope to leave myself open a bit of serendipity. Mm-hmm. Will that be born out of anything you're doing at the moment, or do you think you're going in a, a quite a different direction? Uh, yes, I mean, I've, I've, I have the, there will be a revision stage to the urbanism book. Um, there will be a second edition of the Rome Empire story textbook. And then there will be the book on um, migrations and mobility and diasporas and colonisation, all of that, which is in fact partly written already. So those are the major things. And I will not sign a contract for another book till I've got mm. one or two of those out of the way. Um, so those are the main areas. Of, there's also a few edited volumes, but they um, take different kind of work. Do you find you're missing teaching a lot? or I do a bit, yes. I thought it would be easier to do um, in this, uh, but um, it's, not, it's not easy, with, even within the London federal structure, to just drop in and give a course somewhere. But um, I've been quite fortunate in giving opportunities to teach graduate courses so in the years I've been here I've taught graduate courses in Munich and Haifa and in Spain a couple of times um, so I get to, I get to, to teach on sort of doctoral programs at Athens as well but yeah I mean, it is quite nice I enjoy the experience of teaching particularly the sort of you know third fourth year special subject type thing where you have a group of people who are highly motivated and know quite a bit already and you're sort of working through your ideas and their ideas and where they intermix um, I'm perfectly happy to do first year lectures but this job just doesn't happen to provide it. The ICS has no undergraduate students um, and I'm teaching, I'm participating in a course in UCL again, a master's level course. Mm, yeah but I find with my students that there's sometimes where a student will come out with something where I've just sat there and I was like I never thought of it like that 
which yeah. is like one of those interesting moments. We going back to the the Romanization seminar. I had a student the other day when we were talking about the historical context. He started discussing it in terms of um, like uh, the communist bloc uh, and how it relates to America. And I was just like, I've got. He was asking me like, does he have, talking about the historical context yeah. of how people approach those sort of things? And I was like, I don't know. I was like, I'd never yeah. thought about it in those terms. Um, and I was like, there's something to look into. But students it, are also good readers of work, and because they they are smart. And because they don't know so much that they can fill the gaps that, that you should have filled in yourself. And so I find that students are very good at exposing problems in things I've written. Um, a very early stage when a student said to me, I, I can't bear it when I'm trying to understand a subject and people just want to talk about how their colleagues have got it wrong. And I've made it kind of a rule from then on that if I can... I don't mention living people in the text. They can get in the footnotes so that I can at least have a clear explanation of what I'm doing. And I really owe that to one conversation with a group of students. It's quite an early stage and you know, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. yeah. I suppose with students sometimes they've almost got that sense of completely fresh eyes in some respects, like coming in from, from a student perspective and not been in the kind of milieu of, of academia for, for like long, long, long time. Um, yeah. It's just another perspective, isn't it? And that's... Yeah. So what we were saying actually links back to what we were saying earlier about exposing yourself to different yeah. perspectives. Um, I guess it's also I... about specialism and generalism. And one of my supervisors said to me, the reason most academics write so badly is that if you're working on the topic, you have to read what's written, it, even if it's incoherent and repetitive and goes round in circles and isn't clear. And what you should do is try and... And he, he actually gave his books to his students to read in draft... And he paid them every time they found a mistake, so they get a pound every time they found a typo or something. Um, and he also get them to say, "What's the page at which you wanted to close the book?" That's good. That's good one, actually. Yeah. How far yeah. do you get and sustain someone's interest? Because if a bunch of people who are young, energetic, and want to know about this, not necessarily young, but they're energetic and interested, if they won't read the book, then you're doing something wrong. Yeah, yeah, I'd never thought about that actually. That's like, I've heard about the before the giving someone a pound, but the idea of asking them when did you want to close the book is probably a very good, <laughs> very good question to ask. Really, I never thought of doing that. Um, you have to be brave. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you have to take it. Have to have to be willing to ride the wave of criticism. But um, I mean, do you, do you find as well over the over the years you've been involved, archaeology, ancient history, etc. How how is, how do you think the subject changed? How do you think it's evolved in that time? Well, it's a it's a cluster of subjects, isn't it? Um, I mean, there's some easy ones there. That in terms of social history and social archaeology, when I was doing it, people were getting involved in the social sciences when they were starting, and so you were getting people reading Foucault, Derrida, they were Giddens, all of that sort of stuff. And that's still there a little bit, but there's now much more interest in the life sciences. So there's cognitive um, science, neuroscience, um, lots of really interesting stuff in Roman history being done on disease. Um, so I think there's, a, there's been a shift from an engagement with the social sciences to an engagement, which includes the social, but also biological sciences. And in archaeology, of course, it's gone much further, looking at sort of accounts that involve several species together. Or the kind of discussions of agency, which, you know, entanglement, symmetrical archaeology, all these bits and pieces, which 
wouldn't have been even thought of in the 80s, where people would... One of the first archaeological theory books I read, I suppose, the theory book, was um, Danny Miller's Artifacts as Categories, which is a wonderful way to sort of suddenly look at ceramic in a completely new way. And it was amazingly helpful to me when I was looking at Roman ceramic, even though he was writing about um, about the uh, subcontinent of India. Um, nowadays, I think the idea that an artifact is a category is, is so easily understood. It's, it's absolutely widespread. And what we're now debating about is more sort of, you know, how do artifacts have agency individually and how do artifacts on mass have a different kind of agency? And can we convincingly write accounts of change in which all the energy is all the activities coming from human actors or should we be trying to factor um, material culture agency into that so i think in different ways these subjects have developed in in other directions there's still a lot of stuff that hasn't changed and i think part of it is about institutional inertia that the I'm still amazed that there are these boundaries between classics and history and archaeology. And I know, really, that they're sustained by different departments, different faculties, different British Academy sections, different journals, different learned societies, and that we have a, this strong primate desire to become part of a tribe. And, you know, sooner or later you decide whether you're going to hang out with a prehistoric society or hang out with a Roman society. Which is a shame because you get these enduring boundary effects which you know, in the work of, of really gifted people like Martin Miller you see what what happens if you don't let that get in your way if you bring in the strong material from Roman social and political history and archaeological science and uh, archaeological methods developed more by prehistorians or by new world anthropological archaeologists but those boundaries are still there. And um, people more or less have to choose, don't they? You have to choose more or less when you write your thesis, whether you, which department you write it in. Because when you write your CV, you're going to be satisfying, you know, representatives of one tribe or the other. Mm. And even with sort of wonderful issues like the Beaver Hume Trust, trying desperately to get people to think outside the box and be interdisciplinary, it's really, yeah, the, the, the inertial drag of, of institutions is so heavy and and actually it's worse in other countries than here I suppose that goes back to what you were saying earlier though doesn't it about continuing to trying to expose yourself to different people and different ideas and, and build up those those links with, with other departments and trying to, to bridge those gaps I mean do you, do you think it's gradually getting better or do you think it's still very much the, the boundaries are still very much there or I'm a bit impatient, actually. <laughs> I mean, um, that's in general. Ask anyone who knows me. But um, it's not changing as fast. It's like sort of gender in the academy. It should have been sorted decades ago. And mm. it's still dragging its feet. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things as well that I'm interested about people, particularly I mean, one of the questions, one of the things that I come back to that I'm quite interested about is, is this idea of how do we continue to diversify uh, the subject as well um, because as you say like gender is one issue and I mean one of the other things I notice particularly when I teach is when I look out at the faces before me of a you know, sizable class maybe 50 to 100 sometimes is that the vast 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 majority of faces looking back at me are white 
and it's a question of those sort of things as well of, of how do they they change as well yeah that's really difficult and the within the classics community now a third of all our professors in the discipline are female mm. which is a huge change over even a decade ago but it is not easy if you're looking for people to sit on editorial board or to be part of the scientific committee of a conference or something to find people who are not white. You're right. Mm. And um, those, and the, the people who... Those people who are not only from BAME backgrounds and are willing to work for diversity, it's a tiny number and they individually bear really heavy burdens and... Um, Thank God we got them, but we need a lot more. Yeah. Yeah, I think so that's something. I mean, I think from my own experience, it's something that's very gradually starting to change. When I say gradually, I mean gradually in like big letters. Like it, it's a very, very slow effect. And that's one of those things that I do do wonder about. And I'm interested to find out over time, like how do we engage with that and, and, and shift that? Because obviously, I think the important thing about the study of the Roman world to keep keep it fresh in some respects as well is to, is to keep integrating up keep going back to the idea of integrating other people and other ideas and that's that's part of it and having that that level of diversity there as well is important to keep pushing the the study forward and, and exploring new avenues um but yeah it would be interesting one of the things i'm hoping to explore with this actually by talking to people is their ideas on how they might how we might start to, to address that and, and move it forward yeah i think some I think there's some signs that some institutions are taking more notice. The Royal Historical Society has just produced a, a big report on diversity a couple of days ago. Um, in the guidance for organisations nominating people to ref panels, for the first time every organisation nominating had to produce a statement about its own attitude to diversity. So a whole bunch of learned societies and subject association had to sit down and say, well, what is it we think about diversity? And that does mean people begin to have a wider conversation mm, yeah i don't know i'd be fascinated to see we talked earlier about looking back on things but also looking forward i, I do find myself often wondering what's the what's the subject going to be like in 50 years time um like when you go to a conference what's it going to be like is it going to shift it hopefully yeah who knows we'll see well you'll mm. see i won't <laughs> um kind of sort of moving towards wrapping up now uh did have you got anything coming up at the ICS that you want to advertise? You can give you a platform to, to sell. <laughs> well, we're still trying to do everything. Um, we last, one of the things that we try and do more of is um, research training. And we're trying to provide the kind of training that you can't get through your own university or through doctoral training partnership. So not journal for academic purposes, though we all need that. Um, so one of the things we tried at last term which turned out very successful we ran a course on old persian so we hired in someone who could teach old persian and people spent the mornings working on the language and then the afternoons there were sort of more general uh, activities including some work in the british museum and colleagues british museum are fantastically welcoming and that that was really popular so we might try this again next year probably with phoenician so we're looking for new ways to 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 try and fulfill our national remit um and so more ways of training people, that's a key thing. We already have nearly 200 events. It's quite difficult to imagine we could increase the number of those. We, we're, for the first time, we're running a, a classical reception seminar in the summer, which we haven't done before. Oh, okay. um, so that, that's, if that works, and I'm pretty sure it will, then we might do that on a more regular basis. So an enlarging our view of what classical means. I mean, I think 
a lot of us are quite taken by the critique of the notion of class. Here, Donna Zuckerberg's um, Not Just Dead White Men, um, Joe Quinn's um, writings on the subject. Um, a lot of people in different, and this is happening much more widely, people working on sort of Eurasia more widely. So you know, Yash Elsner in Oxford with his project at the British Museum, Sitter von Reden in Freiburg. Um, several groups doing various kinds of Silk Road Eurasian studies. So I hope we can find ways to contribute to that as well. Obviously, we're never going to stop supporting the original core constituents, and that's partly because the Hellenic and Roman societies are really important partners for us in running the library, and they have interest in those areas. But I hope we'll widen widen things out a bit more. Brilliant. And if somebody wants to uh, just see what you're up to in general, you're on Twitter as well. You're a, you're a fairly active Twitter. We're user. on Twitter. Yeah, I've yeah. um, got a website yeah. and. Um, yeah, that's that's mostly it. And we have oh, we have a blog actually. Um, we have a, Emma Bridges who joined us last year as a public engagement fellow. She set up a blog, and there's now about thirty entries on it, covering all sorts of things, but particularly public engagement and uh, broader society and the classics. Um, but that's a good place to look for stuff. Mm. You you yourself are uh, on Twitter as well, and how do you find Twitter now at the moment? Do you find does it give you a headache like it gives me, or do you? <laughs> I just find I stare at it sometimes. I'm just like, I can't. Oh. I really enjoy Twitter. I enjoy the variety of it. And I, I'm wary about the kind of things I want to get engaged in. I think you can easily get stuck in you know, long flame wars. Um, and actually a long one where the flames aren't very bright is particularly dull. <laughs> Not quite as exciting. I got caught in a small flame war um, uh, last summer over the question of whether or not we should allow... Um, all female panels um, in the Fiat conference, which we're doing this July, which is going to be a huge conference in Bloomsbury. And, you know, sometimes sometimes a, a robust exchange of views for a day or two is okay, but I do find Twitter's a really good way to just keep a pulse on what's going on more mm. widely. And I have, yes, I tweet under my own name and then uh, the ICS has a Twitter feed as well. Yeah, I think nowadays Twitter's probably, you get breaking news on Twitter quicker than you do on any news website. It's um, but yeah, I do find that I have to limit my interaction with it sometimes. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, everything at the moment is just so depressing. <laughs> but yeah. um, I mean, but pure, purely for running a, a research institute like the ICS, it's easily the best kind of social media. We, we've experimented with Facebook, but mm. um, if what you want to do is let people know very quickly what's on, or if you want to let them know that things have changed, or that there's a security alert, or something like that. Mm. Yeah, we could never create, and God forbid we ever create a WhatsApp group large enough to include all the regular users of ICS. Um, media like Instagram and so on, are, they're less useful for what we do. Um, they're just transmitting the wrong kind of information. But um, Twitter is, it's, it's better than sending 10 emails a day to the classes list. Mm, I think uh, Twitter probably is the best platform in terms of interacting with other um, people in your field and also beyond as well, that's what we were saying earlier. And uh, I should say, kind of keeping a pulse on things, particularly, I mean, I probably, people ask me, how do you find out about events and various things that are going on? Like usually it's like, it's actually by Twitter is the first, first port of call yeah. that I see stuff advertised. Um, obviously you have like things like classicist mailing list, but I mean, Twitter is, is by and large, I suppose. Yeah. Also as well, obviously people do things like 
feeds when they're at a conference as well. So it's quite nice if you're not actually yeah. present, you can keep up with what's being said. It's also quite a good way to keep in touch with 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 web only publications and blogs. Now I don't follow lots of blogs, but more and more people are writing quite interesting stuff in a in a web format, and it's nice to be alerted to it. So you know, David Wengro occasionally writes things on big issues of civilization, archaeology, which are great, but they're scattered all over the web. Um, and it's a good it's a good means to write something a little bit controversial because you don't need to wait 18 months for peer review. How do I know about it? I know about it because I follow David on Twitter and he'll put up a link when it happens, as does Edith Hall, as does, you know, Donna Zuckerberg, various people. So I, th- I think Twitter's... I recommend it to everyone, yeah. Okay. <laughs> We've we've hit the limit, I suppose. <laughs> well, everything, yeah, was, was... No, no, nothing in excess, you know. Yeah. We live by that still. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably a good note to end on. Thank you very much. Well, yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh, or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies, who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. <laughs>